Mark, are we on? We good to go? We are good to go. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the January 26, uh, 22 uh, QPSC. Um, Madam Clerk, can we do a roll call, please? Yes, Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Steen has an excused absence, and Trustee Jensen will be a little late. So we do not have a quorum. So as of right now, we don't have a quorum, so a little bit of counsel to presenters. We're going to be doing a little bit of jumping around until we hit quorum, and then we'll come back to consent agenda. There's actually only one action item, which is the consent agenda. So uh, med staff leaders, uh, uh, you're usually item C. Uh, I actually spoke to Dr. Williams. She needs a little bit of time. So uh, give a little bit of heads up to our, our quality safety regulatory team. You might be coming a little bit earlier uh, in this presentation, like maybe third or second. So I just want to give you guys a little bit of heads up. Uh, and then uh, the uh, uh, highlight of the evening are uh, come from Mr. Dean Schuld and Ms. Letitia Murray talking to us about IT. Uh, good evening, Ms. Murray. How are you? Um, uh, and I don't see Dean yet. Dean, you here? Okay, so let's just get started. Uh, we always open up. Uh, hi, Mark. Trustee, Trustee Taft, I'm going to be covering for Dean today. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Excellent. Um, uh, Audience, we always start our QPSC with uh, our re a review of our purpose. And I want to remind us the purpose of the QPSC. The QPSC is established to provide oversight and leadership for medical staff credentialing, review of organizational policies, monitoring of organizational quality, uh, assurance, performance improvement, and safety programs. The QPSC is charged with continuing the practice of direct communication with medical staff leaders on issues of clinical operations and patient care. That's our purpose. Uh, we'll start always our meetings with our purpose. And now let's uh, open it up for public comment, if any, Madam Clerk. No one has reached out to me for it. Wow, no public comment. All right, given that, we'll go into item A, which is our standard uh, opening, our report and discussion. The article uh, uh, picked this evening was uh, forwarded to me uh, by the good uh, trustee Friedman. Um, uh, and. Um, He's actually in the room as, as a visitor. Um, hospitals are in serious trouble, and it came out of the Atlantic earlier uh, this week. I, I hope uh, uh, audience members got to read this. It's a, it's a really compelling article. Uh, you know, I always pick out a few favorite quotes, and then uh, I, I want to open it up to our, our leaders to, to make discussion on this. As a side note, um, one of our items this evening, uh, which will be led uh, by our interim CMO, Dr. Tornabene, and her team uh, will relate directly to COVID. Um, so uh, talking about hospitals being in serious trouble, here are some of the quotes. Um, it's not dramatic Armageddon, it happens inch by inch. The danger of COVID to individual Americans has gone far past the risk that any one infection might pose because the coronavirus has now plunged the entire healthcare system into a state of chronic decay. Um, part of what we'll hear in the report is uh, Omicron is a, is, is a different flavor of what we've been dealing with over the past uh, you know, two years. And just some metrics to hopefully not steal thunder from Dr. Tornabene's team, but on December 31st, uh, our system had 17 COVID positive patients in our system. Uh, as of today, 126, 2022, we have 99 uh, uh, COVID positive patients in the system. So it really has been a dramatic uptick. Uh, 
And I think there was a peak at around 115 or 120. So uh, this is, uh, uh, I think uh, I was talking with our COO and our, one of our CAOs uh, earlier this afternoon, and this is how we get into congestive hospital failure about having places, uh, issues moving people, moving within our system and the like. So I just wanna open it up for discussion. First to Trustee Banerjee, uh, give opportunity to our CMO, our COO, our CEO, and then any other uh, 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 of the team who would like to make comment on the article. Thanks, um, Trustee Bukera. I was thinking too that um, how for the general public, sometimes <laughs> see it as a discrete different things and uh, the, the point in the article where they say that it's galling when folks who are working in the hospital system on top of, on the backs of um, the Delta uh, kind of see life going on as normal with folks outside and somewhere how empathy kind of dries up. And so there are like so many nuances of that that's happening where at the macro level you say, oh, this is, uh, this is not lethal. This is like mild. And but what what that does to from the community point of view and from the from the outside, but what it feels to see, even if it's mild, it's so contagious. So that that's still the the number of hospitalizations are still so much for folks. So those who have been dealing with this in for two years in in so many ways, insidious ways, this is taking a toll. Um, and I thought that was really well put. Yeah. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. I agree, you know, uh, we're, we're still asking our staff to continue to do more. And the, the great part is it's, it's, it seems to be, quote, seems to be less, less life-threatening. The data will help us out. There's less intubated people, but it's still, man, there's 99 in the hospital right now. And, uh, you know, how do we move them between cases and how do we move them around that? So uh, I want to give uh, Dr. Tornabene a little bit of a preview on what she's going to be telling us this evening. Good evening, Dr. Tornabene. Hi, good evening. Yeah, I, I, I love this article. I mean, one of the one of the items that I think all of us live and breathe, awesome, whether it's this surge or the ones during uh, prior in the pandemic, is that it's not just about the patients who come in with COVID, it's about all the patients that we're not treating right now as well, that are getting their, you know, their various conditions are delayed or deferred as we have to put things off. Or if they are, if individuals are choosing to not seek care out of not wanting to be exposed to the virus. So I think that the full breadth of that, I don't know that we understand that yet, and, and I'm not sure when we will, but I, I feel like at some point we're going to see um, numerically the effect, the long-term effect of all of the deferred healthcare, so to speak, down the line that keeps going with every single surge. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Tornabeni. Um, Mr. Espinosa and Ms. Lofton will be also contributing to the discussion this evening on COVID in uh, I don't see our good Dr. Moad, but he'll probably be here late. He'll, he'll, he texted me. He'll, he'll be joining. I'm excited. So, to hear uh, his, Mr. Espinosa, Ms. Lofton, this opportunity for a few words, if, if you have any, not, not obligatory, of course. Mm. No, but I would just um, add to what Dr. Tornabene was, um, was speaking of, and just from a nursing perspective, um, it's the, the impact has been, has been, tremendous, just to say the least. And um, what, we're, what we're really seeing is a lot of fatigue and just 
people are unsure what which way is this going. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. Ms. Lofton. Mr. Yeah. Espinosa. Thank you. Um, just add, you know, there was another article about SNFs um, really also feeling the brunt of this for two years and a lot of nurses uh, leaving the industry and, and folks from the post-acute leaving. And so um, to piggyback on um, what Trustee Banerjee was saying, you know, after two years um, and, and we level off a little bit and then it peaks again. And it's just um, a collaborative that we're doing throughout the system to try to support our teams um, as well as our patients. Excellent. And, uh, you know, where the rubber hits the road is in operations, and we have a, a, a very extraordinarily capable COO. Uh, Mr. Frasky comments on this kind of yeah. predicament where we are, and you and I were just talking about this an hour ago. Yeah, but, you know, I, I always find it interesting when a system is stressed, like healthcare in the United States, when it's stressed, you really start to discover the dysfunctions in it. And I think across America, we're seeing what those problems are with our health system. And as it relates to Highland, it's the same thing, you, or, or our Alameda health system. You really see what stress like this can do to our healthcare system through issues with throughput, issues with staff burnout, all the things that Roe and, and Dr. Tornabeni have talked about. And, you know, on the other hand, it's a great opportunity for us to learn um, and think about what might we do different with our systems and operations to make us more resilient and more capable um, as these kinds of events happen. So I hope we don't lose that opportunity while at the same time trying to be as supportive in the moment as we can to the issues that are happening. Thank you, Mr. Frasky. Mr. Jackson, any closing comments as we close out Section A? Thank you, um, Chair Bouquet. Really, it's just being mindful of this. And, you know, I, I love what Mark just said about the, the pressure causing or showing us where, you know, the opportunities are and showing us the, the weaknesses, if you will, within our system. And so we need to seize the opportunity and, and remain empathetic because at the end of the day, we've got to give our caregivers all the support possible to, to weather this storm. We, we can get through it, but it'll be by working together. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Um, any other comments from any of the leadership team? All right. Barring none, let's, let's close out item A. Um, so thank you for that discussion on this. I mean, I, I think not a day goes uh, through any of the leaders team and leaders minds here that thinking about COVID and, and how it's affecting our operations and our ability to execute quality care. Uh, here's where we typically go to item B, the consent agenda. We do not have a, uh, a quorum at this time. Good evening, Dr. Williams. Did I, did I give us enough time here? Yes, thank you so much. Good evening. Wonderful, I tried to stall. Um, so so with, with, with that, uh, we will actually jump the consent agenda uh, uh, until Do uh, Trustee Jensen gets here and we have quorum. And we'll move right into our, our, uh, one of our standard pieces here, the medical staff reports. Um, uh, our medical staff representatives here will be Dr. Nikita Joshi, an ED physician uh, who is the president of the uh, medical staff of Alameda Hospital. Uh, Dr. Irina Williams is the president of uh, uh, anesthesiologist and pain management specialist who is uh, the med staff uh, president for uh, Highland and San Leandro. And is um, Dr. Zali in the room? 
Yes, he is. There he is. And then, of course, Dr. Afzali, who, who represents the San Leandro Hospital leadership team. So uh, mixing it up, uh, why don't we go with Dr. Afzali, and, and then we'll go with Dr. Joshi, and then we'll go with Dr. Williams, if that's okay. Dr. Afzali. Uh, sure. Good evening, uh, everyone. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, so the San Leandro Leadership Committee uh, is uh, starting off the year with uh, reviewing what we've done last year and uh, uh, soul searching, if you will, uh, going forward and, and seeing where our place is within the system and within the MEC, uh, which we will review during our, uh, well, just prior to our February meeting. Um, but starting with uh, uh, the year uh, end of 2021, uh, we reviewed some of our uh, accomplishments uh, as well as some of the challenges that we continue to face. And uh, if you don't mind, I'll briefly outline some of those uh, significant accomplishments. Um, and uh, the first one was uh, access to uh, clinical uh, specialists uh, namely, uh, the use of telemedicine to do consults. Uh, we had uh, teleneurology, uh, which uh, with the help of Dr. Tornabene uh, and Dr. Gaines at Highland, uh, as well as Dr. Joshi uh, with Alameda being the stroke center, uh, is now uh, in regular use at all of our facilities, uh, which I think is, is great. We use telemedicine to consult uh, neurosurgery, psychiatry, uh, and so all of these have been sort of uh, remnants of, of uh, the past two years with COVID, uh, but I think is a, is, a, is a positive change in going forward can actually empower us uh, with patient care. Um, specialty clinic referrals is a pilot that uh, launched in, in December with the hopes of uh, expanding to uh, uh, beyond the three specialties that we're piloting. Uh, there's uh, the ethics committee that is up and running at, at San Leandro now. We have a sepsis champion looking at our sepsis cases. Uh, and uh, you know, this month uh, we started using our brand new monitors, which are absolutely uh, wonderful. Uh, so I want to thank administration, uh, Mr. Jackson, Mr. Fratsky, uh, for uh, sort of making that happen. That, that, was a, that was a long time ask that I had been mentioning for quite a while. And as soon as they took uh, charge of the home, uh, uh, it wasn't long before uh, those were moving and we finally have them installed in the EDs and, uh, and they work very well. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, on, the, on the other side with uh, challenges, staffing has been uh, very difficult at San Leandro. I'm sure it's been felt across the system and uh, I work at Alameda as well, so I've, I've seen its impact uh, there for sure. Uh, San Leandro is a special case because uh, yeah, our volumes are, 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 are the second highest in the system, uh, yet uh, the capacity in terms of space where we can put patients uh, and uh, our ability to move becomes handicapped very quickly uh, as soon as the volume reaches a certain level. Uh, and I would say uh, the last week of, uh, of 2021 uh, and the first 10 days of uh, 2022 were especially challenging at San Leandro with days where we had uh, just four nurses in the emergency department with upwards of 30 patients in the, in the department, uh, which uh, I don't need to say uh, that uh, the ratios were, were all off, uh, but also uh, there was uh, boarding in the ED of patients uh, two to three days, which we just don't see at San Leandro. 
Uh, and I've said this multiple times before, when you have a 13-bed ED and 10 of those beds are occupied with boarding patients, uh, it, it just paralyzes the department and we're not able to move patients. Um, Moving in the right direction, we had good support from staff. I want to specifically call out uh, Glorinda Pastorius, the CAO at, at, at uh, San Leandro, for working tirelessly uh, and uh, off hours to, to sort of help uh, offload some of that pressure on, on the staff uh, on the grounds. Uh, but we still have challenges with our hiring an ED manager. We've had very few applicants there. Uh, and uh, respiratory therapy remains uh, without a leader at San Leandro, uh, but we're hoping that those issues will get addressed uh, in a timely manner. Um, the other challenges we're, saving, we're facing going forward, uh, Dr. Bouquet, uh, I'm sure you share my concern with, with GI, we're having just one specialist uh, taking call the majority of the month. Uh, I'm worried that in the long run, uh, we, we may have more limited coverage and the same is true for ENT and, and cardiology. Uh, but as of right now, there, there are no issues, but uh, I'm kind of holding my breath when it comes to those three specialties. Um, next month, we'll talk about what, what our role is and, and how we want to restructure the San Leandro Leadership Committee. So I'll share more of what the group has to say about that uh, during our February meeting. Um, and that's all I can share today. There'll be more updates next month. I can answer any questions if there are any. Thanks, Dr. Afzali, for that. And uh, let the public minute show. I think Trustee Jensen has joined. Is that right, Madam Clerk? Yes, she's here now. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Dr. Afzali, thanks for that report. Uh, so uh, uh, a couple of things. Talk to us about how this uh, specialty clinic referrals is is. It's going how how's that being tracked um so uh, uh catherine horner is at the helm uh of that and i think she's going to be mm -hmm. passing it on to dr williams now that dr williams uh is back um the uh three key clinics that we started was nephrology gi and uh sorry nephrology urology and oncology i believe um and uh we have uh, ortho that's been uh going this entire time, we've always had ortho referrals. Uh, and so it's basically a similar setup. And we had a couple of hiccups where uh, the referrals were denied from the ED, uh, but those were referred to Catherine Horner and uh, the issues were addressed uh, expediently and the patients were scheduled for, for follow-up. Essentially, they wanted e-consults instead of those referrals and it was just an issue. Uh, Outside of that, I have not heard any, any, any hiccups. And so my hope is that the next step will be to expand it to other clinics um, uh, so we can expand the program. And I see Ms. Horner and Dr. Williams here. Dr. Williams though gets the hand icon, so it goes to her first. <laughs> Thank you. Trying to stick to Zoom etiquette here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I just wanted to provide an update regarding the specialty referral pilot. Um, so right now it is nephrology, um, 
pulmonology in Himonk. Um, I am tracking the number of the incoming direct referrals from ED to these specialties and I'm collecting data on a monthly basis. Um, so far, the volume hasn't been large, but I think it's meaningful because these patients are in need for urgent uh, appointments on the specialty side. Um, my next step will be to follow up with my uh, work group to make sure that operation-wise and uh, education-wise, we don't have any gaps and that the, all the parties understand how to utilize this workflow. Um, so that's where we're at with that. Ms. Horner, any uh, additions? Yeah, no, um, I'm really glad Irina is now taking that project back on as part of her working group. And I just wanted to use this as an opportunity to thank everybody who helped um, get that pilot up and going and, you know, trying to think through how best to take care of patients um, who are need to be who are being discharged from the AT and the hospitals. Okay, thank you, Ms. Horner. Uh, Dr. Afzali, uh, for, for this purpose, I take off my trustee hat and I put on my GI division chief hat. And, I'll, and I'd let you know that it is the full intent to have system level GI with standard practice across with reduction of variance. But as you know, these, these builds don't happen overnight. Um, so so uh, more to come, of course, and in discussion with our CMO. Thank you. Uh, uh, I'll put the trustee back, hat back on now. So uh, uh, trustees, any other comments uh, for Dr. Afzal? Uh, trustee Banerjee. Yeah, I was, um, so um, thank you, Dr. Afzali, and uh, thanks for the accomplishments that you listed, just so many, and you've been such a vocal advocate for the monitors, and I'm so glad that those obsolete monitors have finally been, uh, that you have uh, good ones. It has been many years of advocacy for, uh, for these uh, but uh, the GI and the specialty, this has been, again, a two-year, two-and-a-half-year kind of conversation that's been happening. So, Taft, I know that on a very high level you said more to come, but I just kind of wanted to know a little bit more about, like, why, you know, what it is and when do we think that there might be um, uh, some of uh, this uh, coverage might happen at San Leandro with GI. So, Idris, uh, uh, and you can jump in. Uh, Dr. Zali, you can jump in. So, uh, Trustee Banerjee, I'm putting Division Chief Pat back on. There is currently coverage. I think Dr. Zali's concerns are the long-term durability of the current system, uh, right. which 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 I would agree with. Um, so, there there is currently a coverage system uh, for them. It's just uh, it, it's not a unified group. And uh, there, I think, uh, like everything, we have we have legacy uh, protocols and processes in place, which uh, this administration is currently evolving to bring us up to speed. Is is my PR version of that? Okay, that's really helpful. So there is, <laughs> even though it's uh, kind of um, piecemeal, but there is coverage at this point in time. It is just that there is at all for the hours, for the days, for the extent needed. Yeah. It is there. Yeah, there is a, a, a GI doctor available 24-7 to speak to uh, San Leandro doctors. Okay. Yes, I'm sorry. I, I was ambiguous about that. We do have GI coverage at the moment. It's the long-term outlook. That... Yeah, I heard you say you're holding your breath and bracing yourself for when mm -hmm. that happens. And I was wondering what that meant. Is that the 
um, is internalizing it and kind of, you know, institutionalizing it is probably going to take a little bit more time. All right. Thank you. Thank and you. to simplify it, it's FTE, it's money, and it's recruiting. Understood. Got it. Thank you, Dr. Afzali. Thanks, sir. Uh, Dr. Joshi, good evening. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for having me. Uh, I want to give a report on behalf of Alameda Hospital med staff. And so a lot of the concerns um, that Dr. Afzali raises in terms of COVID, in terms of staffing, is exactly what's being felt system-wide and definitely at Alameda Hospital. We're smaller, so it doesn't actually take much great numbers for us to really come to a standstill. So some of the concerns that we have had specifically related to COVID have been related to staffing, um, nursing staffing, um, techs, our support in that regard. Uh, we've had um, issues regarding some of the physicians who had COVID, and so we were able to work with EBMG and to get some coverage for emergency funds to pay extra for people to... Oh, okay, please go, please go. Oh, I heard a music so out there. Okay, please leave. Okay, to be quiet. Whoa. Sorry. Don't be sorry, um, it's life. <laughs> and that. Thank you. And so what staffing has done has brought everything to a standstill. So in the need to preserve nursing ratios, we've had to, for example, um, board more patients in the emergency department. <laughs> That has led to challenges and difficulties in ambulance offloading time, uh, which is another great issue that I really appreciate the administration is working with our partners with um, Falk Ambulance to try to resolve those issues. Um, within the boarding involves having patients leave. So working with our SNFs and being able to discharge our patients has been a huge challenge that of course is not unique to Alameda Hospital, but is significantly felt at Alameda Hospital. Uh, I do hope though, when you look at the numbers of the patients coming to the Alameda Hospital, in the last week, the numbers have become a little bit more normalized. And so I'm hoping that that might be a trend that at least the burden of illness might be lessening and hopefully that will have a downstream impact of, of reducing the amount of boarding that we're doing and challenges to our throughput times. Some other issues that I wanted to highlight, uh, Dr. Valerie Ng, who's chair of pathology, has done an incredible amount of work in highlighting our blood bank shortages. This is a nationwide problem, uh, but Dr. Ng has been talking to us about this for months, um, but only recently in literally the last one or two weeks has it become really, really severe. So we're working with administration and I know that our CAO, Mark Brown is working on getting a blood drive organized for Highland Hospital. Uh, but when I hear Dr. Ng talk about how short and how dire our situation is, it, it really is very dire. And what that does is that Alameda Hospital, we are unable to really fully stock our blood bank. And so we are bare bones stocking our blood bank because Highland and San Leandro, which, you know, Highland is the trauma center, San Leandro does a lot of vascular surgery, their day-to-day -day needs are significantly higher than Alameda Hospital. But what happens is if Alameda Hospital has a very sick, let's say GI patient who is hemorrhaging and needs blood, 
even though we have GI at Alameda, we may have to actually transfer that patient to Highland Hospital for patient safety and access to blood bank. And that then adds more burden to our system that's already taxed with overcrowding and, and boarding issues. So really, what's the solution to our blood bank shortage? I know Dr. Ng has escalated. She's working to try to um, find other venues of getting blood. But the fact is, we need more donations. And so I'm glad that the administration is working to organize blood bank drives. But I hope that we as an organization can be much more vocal about the need that we need our community to donate blood. Um, and like now, not in a month from now, but you know, as soon as possible. So I'm really looking forward to, to these blood bank drives being organized. Otherwise, as Dr. Abzali mentions, our access to subspecialties um, is improving, but there are some areas of concern still. Uh, the e-consult referral that Dr. Williams and Dr. Horner referred to is the same process implemented at Alameda Hospital. So I'm glad, you know, thank you, Dr. Williams, for coming back and being able to take that on and to further what's happening there. Uh, one other issue I'd like to raise with our specialty consult coverage is our issue with VRAD. Um, you know, there we currently have radiology reads overnight through VRAD, and I understand that there may be some changes in the future, but I'm hopeful that we'll be able to continue our relationship with VRAD uh, or find another superb partner to work with so that we can continue to have radiology reports for our imaging available to us 24-7. And that concludes my report, and I'm open um, for any questions or comments. Thank you, Dr. Joshi. Any questions for Dr. Joshi, uh, Trustee Jensen, or Trustee Banerjee? None? I think I Dr. Banerjee wanted to. Oh, uh, sorry. I, I, my internet's a little bit freezing, so I'm not seeing hands or anything. Yeah, I was, um, yeah, I was uh, asking to, uh, wanted oh, to go for it. Question. I wanted to hold the question on like the ED boarding that, that is happening and the delay in the throughput until like all three are done, because I mean, it was quite concerning to hear Dr. Vzali's essay of 13 uh, ED uh, beds, if 10 are used for boarding and similarly, that that is uh, that is more uh, you know acute than we've seen this kind of you know staffing issues even last last month. So it seems to be constantly. If it's worse, um, what are some mitigating things uh, actions that are happening? I'd love to hear about that. But I'll wait until Dr. Williams has presented as well. So maybe there could be a similar um, for all three. Absolutely. Trustee Jensen, any questions? And actually, okay, okay, got it. Um, Dr. Joshi, uh, uh, for, for almost a year or two, uh, I'm putting my division chief hat back on, uh, access to GI specialist was a recurring theme there, so I'm happy that that's not listed. Uh, we are very happy with our GI partners now at Alameda Hospital. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, if, if we're going to have to transfer all the GI, many GI patients out of the hospital because of the blood shortage, that will, <laughs> we haven't solved the problem yet then. Yeah, not totally. So we have to definitely work around that. So um, with that, we'll close out with Dr. Joshi and we'll go with Dr. Williams. Good evening, Dr. Williams. 
Good evening. Thank you. Um, so I will start with my report for AHS medical staff. Um, a large portion of my report was an update uh, that we received from San Leandro Leadership Committee, but Dr. Abzali has already covered <laughs> all the highlights of that report because um, we did uh, get that reported to the MEC um, earlier this month. Um, we have also received a report from Quality and Safety Committee. Um, uh, you can see the details uh, in the attached document, but I think one of the highlights is that Highland Hospital and San Leandro Hospital currently meet all the CMS requirements, and there were some metrics that were mentioned in the report that we, uh, we'll be looking at um, later at a later date uh, with this committee. In terms of the key concerns, I think I'm going to share some of the concerns mentioned by other um, uh, chiefs of medical staff. COVID and staffing shortage remains um, a concern for our providers. I think we've seen staffing shortages sort of across pretty much all settings, ambulatory and inpatient, ED, um, across the nursing, uh, staffing, provider staffing. Um, uh, we do appreciate the support that the system leadership provided for the employees in terms of access to testing as well as masks and N95 masks. Um, it's great that our employees now can um, test um, in a timely fashion and they can facilitate return to work um, and help our workforce. Um, another concern that sort of stands and I think sort of got carried over from the previous QPC is just a general question about the next steps of the strategic plan uh, and AHS governance structure. I think this one is going to remain on the list for some time until we have um, more updates on that. And then the third concern that came up during the last MEC discussion um, was um, the update regarding the nursing quality review process. Um, MEC members were wondering where we at with that because since this um, issue was brought up before. Um, so we did reach out to the system leadership to provide us with an update uh, in terms of where we're at with this process, what are the plans, and um, what are the ideas regarding the possible structure and essentially what this process can look like within the Alameda Health System. So this concludes my report. Um, I'm open to any questions. Trustees Banerjee or Jensen, any comments or questions for Dr. Williams? My question isn't actually, it's for anyone um, uh, regarding the issue of the um, nursing, the nursing quality review process. Can, can I get a little bit of additional information? What's the, what is the key concern? Yeah, so I, I think I can probably start. Um, so we have a pretty robust process for the pr uh, provider quality review. We have dedicated committees within departments. We have sort of the reporting structure, the, the system we use to grade the um, quality-related events associated with providers. And, of course, we have the medical staff at the sort of forefront of ensuring quality and safety of the care that our providers um, do. However, um, it doesn't seem like we have as robust of a process for the nursing staff, at least at present. So that's sort of where we're coming from with this question. Um, thank you. I, then maybe 
is that something that we that has been um, discussed with that the CMO that the CMO is discussing with um, the CAO or, or elsewhere? I, how is this being addressed, or is it necessary to be addressed? Thanks, Mark. Yeah, um, I'm going to let Ro handle this, but you know, yeah. part of a professional nursing work environment is the ability to oversee your own practice. And um, Ro, I know, can comment more in detail, but um, within nursing, um, the intent is to put together a um, practice and quality committee for the nurses. So as RCAs discover nursing practices that could improve or other ways um, that people are seeing quality within nursing um, areas um, to look for improvement. They have a place to look at it. Our nurses, peers can come together to review. So I think, Ro, maybe you could comment on your intent around that. Yeah, no, thank you, Mark. You're exactly right. Um, so we did receive the feedback um, from Dr. Williams and the um, MEC committee. Uh, we will be putting together, as Mark mentioned, a um, nursing quality review committee uh, that will have uh, frontline nursing staff as well as um, leadership on it uh, to review issues that are um, brought up either through MIDAS reports or found through um, RCA reports. We'll have a forum to be able to discuss those and look at the workflow and the practice and make any necessary adjustments. And so the team will be getting together on the 3rd. And that's one of the items that we'll be discussing. So in the meantime, if there are any issues uh, with nursing practice, the team can email them to me and we'll be more than happy to review them and get back to, um, to MEC or whoever the designee is to receive that information. Well, that's great information. Thank you for um, sharing that. And um, thank you, Dr. Williams, for bringing it up. I'd ask um, our Dr. Chair if we could get this on the quality committee's agenda for a few months down the road to um, hear an update after these these tasks have been discussed. Trustee Jensen, I think that's an excellent suggestion. This is a newish endeavor for the organization. We have an excellent new chief nursing, exactly. chief nursing officer who's going to be leading this and all in the name of improving quality. I think uh, this is a no-brainer for all of us. Yeah. Uh, so uh, thank you, Trustee Jensen. Trustee Banerjee, you had some comments? I, I was going to ask the same thing that we've spoken about the governance structure for nursing and for the um, um, quality review. And if we could have an update at some point in time at, at QPSC, that would be good. Uh, my other question was that with the staffing shortages that was mentioned everywhere and the new deadline for the um, booster, um, and how are we doing with that? And then what are we, are we anticipating more shortages because our staff have, uh, you know, maybe they are not, not all boosted or documented. Trustee Banerjee, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bounce this one to Dr. Tornabene. Dr. Tornabene, those questions will probably be included in the report out on COVID-19 with regard to employees and, and the like, is that correct? Yeah, I don't have a slide on the statistics around uh, the, the today's vaccination rate, but I can I can verbally tell tell all of you that once we get there um, to to that presentation, no problem. Is that acceptable, Trustee Banerjee? Yes, yes. Okay, and this question is back. Uh, uh, I'll include three on this: Dr. Tornabene, Ms. Lofton, and Dr. Williams. 
roughly how much time do you think you need to uh, develop something that would come back? Do you need a quarter uh, to keep this on the agenda or do you need two quarters? How, how, how are you projecting? I would say at least one quarter. So this okay. is something that's a priority for us. Yes, um, ma'am. And I'll be able to give you an update definitely next quarter. Okay, so so we'll look for maybe uh, 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 April, May uh, as an sure. agenda item. Okay, mm -hmm. Trustee Jensen. Wonderful. Okay. Any more questions or comments for Dr. Williams? Um, I'll make a brief comment to Dr. Williams. Uh, thank you for again discussing the strategic plan. Um, and let it be known that, that the medical staff is going to be engaged for their opinions on developing the strategic plan. This isn't something that's necessarily, uh, in my opinion, and I'll let Mr. Jackson come in, that's going to be handed to you. Uh, I think the med staff is going to be a deep participant in the shaping of this. Mr. Jackson? I couldn't agree more. Um, we are actively seeking the involvement of the medical staff and, and early so that the product is not too far down the pike. And so um, I just, I'm looking forward to the, the input. And Mr. Jackson and uh, I were just working on the instrument uh, to use to, to kind of gather a lot of data because uh, uh, when we pool both MECs, we're talking about maybe 40 people, uh, which would be hard for one-on-one -on -one interviews. So we'll start out with a, a, a kind of, if you will, a detailed survey instrument where full opinion uh, anonymously, if, 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 if desired, can be given. <clears throat> Thank you so much. That's very uh, refreshing to know, and we're very grateful for the opportunity to participate in shaping the yeah. strategy. And, and, and as a, as a sidebar, this is not limited to the med staff. We're 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 going. The 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 intent is to engage critical stakeholders, internal and uh, external. Um, and so uh, there will be a lot of people asked. This isn't this isn't three people making something and handing it to everybody else. Any other comments as we uh, uh, come to a, a close on this section? As always, thank you to our medical staff leaders. We, we appreciate your frankness and, uh, and using your voice. So that will close out C, uh, item C, and we'll jump backwards. We'll go to consent agenda since we have a quorum. Um, trustees, uh, there are five items on the consent agenda item. Minutes, policies and procedures, medical staff policies and procedures, provider educational competencies and privileged forms. Um, it's there before you, before entertaining a motion to approve the entirety of the consent agenda. Are there any items that you would favor need to be removed for discussion? Trustee Jensen, anything that you see that needs to be removed? Nothing. Uh, given that, I'll, I'll, I'll entertain a motion to approve the entirety of the B1 through B5 consent agenda. Um, I, I would... I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna point out that I wasn't at the meeting, so um, I'll approve the minutes based on your recommendation. But I wasn't actually there. Okay, we can so uh, document that in the, in our minutes. But you're willing to give your approval of it. Got it. Um, so a motion. M move to approve. Uh, I'll second. Uh, uh, Madam Clerk. Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Jensen. Aye. The motion passes. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. With that, we'll jump back. We'll go to item D. Item D is a standing item for us. It's our patient safety regulatory affairs and quality TNM dashboard, true north metric dashboard. Uh, this is uh, uh, held in, uh, out of the chief medical officer's office, but our chief medical officer 
also has a, a great quality team under her. So Dr. Tornabene, I'll give you the mic and uh, let you direct us for the next 10 to 15. I, sure, that sounds however, great. However, however you like. So in the packet, as uh, there's the narrative reports and then there are some executive summaries. I'll be talking us through uh, the executive summaries. However, Anna, Nilda, Darshan, um, and Annette, if you're on here, please fill in if there's any items that, that require that. So I'm gonna start first with patient safety. First, and unfortunately our harm rate in the month of December in terms of patient safety events has increased. So of the events that reached the patient, there were 21 out of 422. So that's a, a 4%, that's 4%. And unfortunately that's a slight increase over our, our baseline. Now, when we look at these harm events, uh, thankfully most of them, the vast majority of them are level E events. And so uh, level E events um, means that there is a harm that does reach the patient. However, it's a harm that is either temporary or did resolve after some level of intervention. Most of these harms for the month of December are skin events and falls. And I, I think that that speaks to the, the high volume and the busyness that we're seeing in all of our, in all of our hospitals that, that our, you know, that all of us are, are working hard at a high volume. And so that can potentially lead to the risk of these types of events. In addition, and also likely speaking to this um, overall sense of everyone working hard and being fatigued is that our patient relations events also increased for the month of December. And these tend to be in two categories. One are complaints on quality of care and the other are complaints on the under the bucket of what is called professionalism. And that can be professionalism of any discipline. And, and again, these increases our thoughts are that this is related to the volume, the general fatigue, the, a lot of the work that, that everyone is doing and, and carrying um, as we started to move into a surge and now two years into this pandemic. Moving now to the culture of safety survey, uh, as we've reported before, there were quite extensive action plans that were developed out of the SCORE survey those action plans were completed for the, for the most part by December 31st, 2021. There was a ton of engagement with these action plans. In addition, one of the system action plans was to really roll out the just culture and the approach um, that we, uh, the approach to management with a just culture. So that we had about 350 leaders trained. We had a four-hour training. In fact, I just got my, my folio, my paper folio um, that, that helps me walk through the Just Culture algorithm. And then we're moving into this first quarter of calendar year um, 2022, rolling out a one-hour e-learning across the system for all staff to learn about a Just Culture approach. So I'm, I'm very excited that that was a, a key outcome out of last year's score survey. In addition, uh, I, Darshan has shared before that we have this Quality and Patient Safety Innovation Award. We're gonna be turning those awards 
to the the best or most impactful uh, action plans that came out of the SPORE survey. So more to come on that, but we're looking at, for our nominations of that. And of course, our patient safety program continues to focus on standardization and a system-wide performance improvement. Now, moving on to uh, regulatory affairs. Over, so this is the January report, and we had in December and in November two on-site CDPH uh, complaints and site visits. One was uh, related to event from uh, to an event from quite a number of years ago, and that has been closed. The other one is still open at San Leandro. In addition. We did have a CDPH on site over the last, uh, five, uh, for a five-day survey at the end of last week and earlier this week, coming in for an Amtala complaint. So that survey completed yesterday. We do not yet have the report uh, in terms of the findings. We got a verbal report, but it was very limited in terms of the information we got. And so we will be awaiting that formal report from CDPH, and they were surveying on behalf of CMS. In terms of CDPH reportable events, there was one reportable event on, at the end of December at Highland. Um, we did, uh, we, we reported, we self-reported and we're still waiting for an investigation to come. In terms of joint commission activity, uh, there were two safety complaints that we received and we did, uh, we did respond and both of those have been closed. We are uh, also under joint commission. We are still awaiting our Alameda Hospital triennial survey. We thought that they were going to be here in the fall, and they're still not here. So um, we I myself hope that they come soon, but, but we'll see. And then in addition, we have an upcoming uh, stroke for Alameda Hospital. Now, follow up on the Sentinel events. We did have some Sentinel events earlier this year. All of those have had uh, extensive reviews. We've submitted our action plans and we're in audit mode for the action plans for um, almost every single one of those Sentinel events. And then there was a new query received from the BRN, the Board of Registered Nursing um, uh, this month. And uh, we, the query it has been received and we are responding to it. Uh, we were going to have our um, Joint Commission Resources Consultants. Those are the, that is the consulting arm of the and They were going to uh, come back and, and help us in early February. We just learned that they need to delay that also because of the Omicron surge. So um, we'll be bringing them back in. And we wanted to bring them back in consultation to look at areas like ongoing looking at infection prevention at all of our policy process, et cetera. Um, but hopefully they'll be able to come in perhaps a month later in March. So that is our regulatory affairs update. And then lastly is our True North metric dashboard. In the month of November, our third next available appointment for primary care was at goal. However, we were uh, quite out of goal um, with a 30 days um, in specialty care. Um, what I understand is that there was especially a large impact on specialty available with the number of holidays and time off in the month of December. So I anticipate that the December, you know, depending on the, the holiday impact for December, I'm hoping that that will uh, come back down um, in next month's report. 
The next three on the True North metric dashboard are all related to throughput. And, and you've heard from our physician leaders about the, the significant throughput challenges that we've been having both uh, before Omicron, but certainly amplified in, in this surge. And I think that there's, there's, in terms of why has it gotten um, so much worse, one of the items that we are really seeing a challenge with is our egress from the hospital for our patients with COVID. While this is not reflected here in the November data, that you know, part of this surge has been about the, the challenge of getting our patients out. In addition, um, one of, and in fact, right before um, this board meeting, I had a checkpoint uh, meeting with our colleagues at Huron, and I'm very excited about this uh, care optimization initiative that we're partnering with Huron on. And there's three areas of throughput that we'll be focusing on. One is on the transfer center, is on ED throughput, and one is on our multidisciplinary rounds and really the care of patients in the hospital. Um, so I, I, I am extremely optimistic and energized by, by this effort. We have um, a lot of great minds on it. And so I think that, that we'll be seeing some outcomes because what they're looking for are quick interventions aside from also the longer term ones. In terms of percentage of QIP metrics on targets, um, we, our goal, because QIP is on the calendar year, and so our goal was by the end of calendar year 2021, we would hit 90% of our metrics. And as of the month of November, we did so, which is great news. Um, All-cause 30-day readmits. If you recall, we had some really great performance earlier this fiscal year. Unfortunately, um, our, our readmissions uh, were a little bit higher for the month of November. Um, however, I'm understanding that there was some training for care management on uh, the on a program called Enhanced Care Management, and our our complex care team is really looking and working hard on on reviews of frequent utilizing patients to see if we can help bring down um, the the readmission rate. Another uh, another area of of concern of mine is that our hospital acquired infections index, unfortunately has increased. And, and we've seen that in different areas of, uh, in, in different surges of the pandemic. In the month of November though, we saw, uh, we, saw, uh, we saw catheter associated UTIs, we saw C. diff, we saw surgical site infections, and we saw central line associated bloodstream infections. So there are, that we need to do a deep dive into, into all of these in order to understand. And in fact, some of that is already underway under our infection prevention leadership. And then lastly is around our patient experience. And uh, so for, for this, for, the, for November 2021, unfortunately, we, we didn't meet our target for rate the hospital nine or 10 for inpatient. However, our year to date is at target. And um, for CGCAPS, which is uh, recommending our practice, uh, we have not yet met the year to date, but we did meet the metric uh, for the month of November. And I know that there's lots of focus on how we can improve our patient experience. And so with that, I would uh, like to open it up to questions and offer, and also Anna, Darshan, Nilda, um, is there anything that you have to add? Yeah, uh, thank you, Dr. Tornabene, and definitely, uh... Want to want to open open it up to your team because uh, they they are they they see all this with a with a lens that we some of us don't see it through. So 
Ms. Graywall, Ms. Perez, Ms. Torres, any, any comments, any additions? Anything? I'm very happy that we um, saw a decrease in the number of reportable events. I think that that's a good trend, particularly when we are having a surge and we do have critical staffing, I mean, well, impactful staffing uh, challenges. I think that that is, you know, that does speak to the intention of everyone to maintain quality, even in those challenging circumstances. So we're very pleased with that. Some things are outside of our control, but, you know, I think the things that we can control, people are, are trying to pay attention to. Ms. Perez, uh, uh, this one's to, to you because you always seem to kind of see the tea leaves. Why didn't uh, uh, TJC come? And man, how long are we going to be on, on uh, sitting on this ledge? When are they going to come? Not well, I, <laughs> I think that the different variants and the surges that they were seeing, and I think a sensitivity to the staffing challenges around the nation, I think had them take a moment of saying if, you know, they sent out a memo in September telling us that if you are accredited and you are waiting on your survey, you will remain accredited until such time that we can get out there to survey you. The positivity rate for Alameda County did go up quite a bit. And I think there was some thought around making our survey a virtual survey. Of course, for the stroke survey, that's a possibility. And we were notified that that date will come and we will get a notification um, but for the on-site, they actually do are required to not do a complete virtual, but there are some parts that they actually do have to come out, especially around environment and care. So I think they're just, just trying to be, I think, a little bit of both sensitive to their um, to their their customers as well as sensitive to you know the challenges that they might be facing internally as a company. Got it. So difficult to say, probably within yeah. the next quarter, right? Oh, gosh, I hope so. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Ms. Torres? Um, I don't really have much more to add um, than Dr. Tornabene uh, discussed. Um, I think the team is working really hard on developing uh, action plans that are be applicable across the system. And I'll just mention, for instance, um, one of the things Darshan is doing with regards to the RCAs is that um, she's implementing a process where when something occurs at one organization, she's looking across to make sure that any action plans or any learnings are applicable across the entire system. Um, similarly, with infection control, um, Deborah's team is taking on a couple uh, PI projects um, to reduce HAIs across the system. We've seen some similarities. We've seen some areas of improvement. Um, partnering with nursing, um, especially with the CLAPSI. So there's a lot of work um, happening, and um, I fully expect that we're going to start to see uh, favorable trends in our, in our data pretty soon. I, I like the optimism, Madam <laughs> Torres. Uh, we want some leapfrog A around here. <laughs> yeah. So do Ms. I. Ms. Graywall, any comments? Um, yes, I do have a, a real positive comment. Uh, I, I, I echo everyone's uh, recognition about the, uh, the tremendous pressure and stress that healthcare systems are put under during the pandemic. Um, I do want to share that our executive leadership team has given a lot of thought about implementing the culture of safety survey um, uh, upcoming 
opening on February 28th of this year. And just with all of the other initiatives and focuses, um, they felt that it is their commitment to the organization and the frontline staff to continue the work that we have started and to make, even if there's small incremental changes to the culture, hearing their voice and, and addressing those key uh, areas of concern, uh, that is just as important as everything else that they're simultaneously overseeing. So I'm really, really grateful to our um, senior leadership for supporting, supporting all of the work um, to, to improve the culture and, and accountability uh, with the Just Culture uh, implementation. Um, again, a lot of things happening, but I think it's all, uh, all the synergy towards the right direction to improve our patient outcomes. Thank you for those comments, Ms. Graywell. That's very nice to hear. Uh, trustees, uh, Trustee Jensen, then Trustee Banerjee. Um, I, I just have a comment. It, the the um, T&M and the, the access quality and patient experience, it, it's certainly not um, a surprise to see to see the results, and especially around um, things like access, things like, um, and even as far as um, hospital-acquired infections, um, and and people's opinions, patients' opinions, because we're suffering from the staffing issues, from staff being unable to come into work because they're being catching this the COVID infection and we're having to to have places where staff isn't available at sites or where we're having to um, shut down beds and other things. So those things, I know that staff's working really hard. I I appreciate that. I we see these numbers and sometimes say, oh God, we have to do better. But given the situation, given the pandemic, I think that we're doing we're doing a good job. We're doing it as well, much better and, and working so hard. And I just have to appreciate all the staff of Alameda Health System, especially at our acute care sites. Thank you, Trustee Jensen, great comments. Trustee Banerjee. Yeah, I was gonna um, say too that some of the dips that we are seeing also are indicative of like probably just how much the shortage is with the staff shortage and how much each one is doing already so kind of reaffirming what uh, trustee jensen said right now um and the just culture the four are mandatory training that happened that that the leaders were so for the folks who haven't been able to complete that yet uh, uh, by december 31st and i the schedule is to roll it roll it out for the rest of the staff by this by by the end of march how how do you track like are they tracking themselves if they if the leadership is able to complete that is there a deadline for that and given again how much everybody is juggling um how are you um going to navigate that all leaders will have got that for our training thank you thank you for the question uh trustee banerjee uh originally we had identified 350 leaders and that's anybody that has a direct report all the way to the C-suite, of which we almost um, were able to train 
300 because we added many interested parties along the way. So many physicians actually also uh, participated in the training, even though they were not initially part of that 350 count. So um, we just today, we got the recordings of some of the uh, well orchestrated or well-navigated sessions, which I will be sending in a communication tomorrow for all the leaders that were unable to attend due to other conflicting priorities. Um, in addition, uh, we have received the module for the training, and that will be disseminated by our um, Learning uh, Leadership Academy and Learning um, uh, Department under HR, and they will track just like any other training that we do across our system that's mandatory. So our goal is by March 31st of this year, everybody will be uh, fully trained and we can fully apply the uh, the methodology around the just culture. And we are also building it into our Midas safety alert system. So um, any event that rises to a harm, the manager will be responsible to actually evaluate the, in, within the just culture algorithm, whether it was human error, at risk, reckless, or where, where it fell and what they did about it. So we will be um, re reconfiguring um, our entire Midas system to be in align with just culture. That's going to be really significant. And then to have that trigger, like whether it's coaching mm -hmm. or whether it's all, all the, the next level of intervention to thank you. Yeah. This is really good to hear. Yeah, thank it's you. big. So, uh, you know, kudos to this team. Uh, I know how hard you guys work. Um, with that, let's close out uh, section D and let's go to item E, sort of always our, our, our marquee item on, on this evening. We hear about quality improvement projects. Uh, this evening, we have the IT Service Center and First Call Resolution. Uh, the, the, the defined speakers were uh, Dean Schuld, who's our Chief Technology Officer. I think pinch hitting for him will be our Chief Information Officer, Mark Amy, and we have Letitia Murray, who's our IT Service uh, uh, center manager. So we've allocated about uh, uh, 20 minutes to this, but if we can maybe get it in around just under 15 to leave time for questions, that would be great. And uh, I'll give it to Mr. Amy and Ms. Murray. Taft, thank you so much. Really appreciate this. And um, I, Dean apologizes. He did have a personal conflict. He was unable to um, uh, step out of Dean uh, actually works much more closely with uh, with Letitia than I do, so he actually should be the one here doing her introduction, but I'm actually uh, honored to, uh, to do that. I'm also going to let you know, many of you have actually worked with Dean, and this is public news. Dean is actually going to be retiring at the beginning of June um, this year, so uh, he has done some great service for us and is absolutely going to be missed uh, by myself, both personally and professionally and by many of our other folks. And I know with, uh, in talking with Letitia as well as the rest of his direct reports that he shared the same uh, sentiment on that. So I just wanted to uh, recognize the work. Dean's been with us a little over two years. He came to us uh, at a time when we were having some technical challenges with our EPIC implementation and he quickly righted the ship and uh, moved us through those. So he's, he's very much going to be appreciated. However, today's story is actually about our service desk. And I will tell you, I am so excited about the work that we've done. When I started here three years ago, 
Um, we had a service desk that had been recently insourced and really did not have any good metrics uh, that we were um, that we were uh, working against. And I'm going to let uh, Tish tell the story about what she did there, but I do want to highlight a couple of things. One of them is, uh, I'm always surprised at this, but Letitia has been here with us uh, in the organi organization for roughly 20 years. And so I, I tease her that she must have started before child labor laws were uh, enacted. Um, <laughs> but she's, she's been here with us forever. Um, she also um, actually managed the uh, ambulatory call center. Uh, she was the director there for a while. And we we're just so fortunate to have her in the service desk uh, uh, and uh, was one of the first people I met when I joined the team. And I will tell you, um, uh, Tish has uh, really has had a positive can-do attitude from day one. She's been continuously learning. Um, I, I'm going to give a couple of shout-outs on things, and they may be in your uh, in your um, uh, presentation, Tish. But um, her team is all ITIL certified, which is a, a certification in um, in the IT world stands for Information Technology Information Library. For those of you that are confused uh, or are curious about that. But um, her team was one of the first teams to get certified in that, which has been a push that we've had across our entire department. And frankly, we've had some much more senior people that are frankly paid a little bit more and so on that have really struggled to get that certification. And so I think it just really um, uh, demonstrates the quality of the people that Tish has on her team. And frankly, I always attribute great quality people to a great quality leader. And that's certainly the case uh, with Tish on this. Um, I also uh, am going to mention that, and she's going to be talking about this, but her metrics really are best in class. I will say I've worked for a lot of organizations, and her uh, the metrics that she's going to share with you are the, some of the very best that I've ever had at any of the organizations I've worked out with, and definitely better than when I was a help desk manager quite a few years ago. Tish knows that. Uh, there. And then lastly, uh, Tish tolerates my jokes uh, at the beginning of most meetings, and so I promised her I would not tell one tonight, so I'm not going to do that, but uh, she puts up with a lot there, so. Fish with that, I'm going to turn the presentation over to you. Okay. Do I need to share my slides or will somebody be forwarding them? I can I can push them forward. They're, it's being shared from my computer. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Tornabene. Uh -huh. So I, I get the pleasure of serving as your IT service center manager for AHS. And we take all the end user calls um, for our staff on break fix and service requests in, re in terms of IT. So um I'm going to take you on a little journey of our problem, as Mark mentioned, three years ago. You can go to the next slide, please. Um, three, year, three years ago, we didn't have any metrics um, for the help desk. We had a lot of dissatisfied customers and poor call resolution. And so first call resolution was at a baseline of 45%. And the industry standard is 60% and above, and a gold standard is 70%. Um, changes to culture and quality was definitely needed. Next slide. Our journey. So in our journey, like I mentioned, our baseline in 2019 was 45%. And so then we began to measure. And as we measured each year, it got better. Um, in 2020, we were at 68%. And just last year, we were at 70% for our first call resolution, meaning that when someone calls, seven out of the 10 tickets that come into IT, 70% my staff can help you resolve on the, while you're on the phone with the user. And the others go to our application teams and our infrastructure teams to provide services for you. Next slide. What did we do to achieve this? So we started measuring everything. So uh, we measured the talk time. 
um, average hold time, abandon rates, and I made schedule adjustments um, to help with the busiest daytime shift and to decrease our overtime and wait. Um, weekly performance is shared with the staff so that we're very transparent with one another where we are weekly and where we need to be in terms of goals. Um, we did KBAs from our application teams to support us working with the end users so that you don't have to wait for a call back. So KBAs are key um, knowledge-based articles that actually teach us what to do and to help you know what you need to do to have your issue resolved. And then uh, we also implemented survey results for users' feedback to the team. So every ticket generates a survey after the issue has been resolved, and the user has an opportunity to either reopen the ticket to say, no, my issue is still pending and it's not resolved. And once that is done, they are able to actually give us feedback from a star score of one to three. And monthly, I have a, a random survey winner that I deliver a $25 gift card to to help with engagement. Next slide. So our service center volume metrics as of last year, we have a call volume. We can get up to 166 calls a day. Um, we can get over 257 tickets a day that are sent in either, mostly we get phone calls, but you do have the ability to email us a ticket mm -hmm. and some users can log in to SolarWinds and log their own tickets. Um, we measure the average speed to answer the call. So the average, average industry standard SLA is greater or equal to 80%. So you should be able to answer a call um, in 30 seconds, 80% of the time. Abandoned rate, our average SLA for the industry is less than 5%. The service center last year, we were at 7%, so we still have some room for improvement. First call resolution, um, industry standard is normally 70. Anything greater than 70% is gold star, and service center was at 70% last year. Next slide, please. So this is the weekly performance that I share with my team. I measure the number of calls each um, each analyst, each tech answers how many ISLRs are processed, and that's how they get network access into the system, and then how many tickets they actually touched and how many surveys that they received. And then I do a, a trend for them of a high, medium, and low performer. So, of course, nobody wants to be viewed in front of their peers as a low performer, and everybody wants to be high. And this has actually pushed people to work harder because it's published for everybody to see. So it, Many managers are a little bit uncomfortable about this, but this has been become a healthy little competition amongst the team. Next slide. So this is a slide of our survey results, as I mentioned before. Um, so ours is in the blue, the service center and IT division. We measure all of our IT application team survey results and all managers have to call back for anything less than a 2.0 for service recovery. So if a user says they weren't really happy with the service, all of us in IT, all management reaches out to the customer to see what we could have done better. So if you see the scores, they're actually pretty good for the service center and our IT division. Um, staff is encouraged to ask users at the end of each call to please take the survey and provide feedback. And this can vary um, for a response rate um, based on the resolved tickets within each week, how many responses we get. 
Next slide. So lessons learned. Um, what I've learned, if, if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. And also um, working as one of the teams earned their respect as a leader. I too will take calls. I help them route tickets. I actually can get on the phone. I've covered shifts with them so that they don't have to work by themselves just to build camaraderie within the team. Um, and listening to them and providing timely feedback to their concerns and giving praise goes a long, long way. Next slide. So our upcoming initiatives, we have um, ServiceNow coming, which is our IT service management system, where we'll be able to provide uh, knowledge-based articles for end users. Um, we're gonna be requesting additional KBAs, um, for the analysts to decrease ticket routing and to increase our first call resolutions. Um, the system will also provide better dashboards and better reporting. And what I'd like to do is some chat for answering problems. So a little, um, so that while we're taking calls, we can also chat with users on simple questions without them having to call in. And then as Mark mentioned earlier, all of my team is ITIL certified. And we're working on some additional training, some EPIC training with our EPIC training team within IT so that we can better understand the workflows to be able to help refresh the users when they forget where something is or how to refer them back to how to complete a workflow without actually having to forward the ticket. And then we wanna, of course, always do employee engagement for appreciation. And I wanna find activities that we could do via Zoom because of COVID, we don't really have the opportunity to gather as we would like to. So next slide. Um, this is the team. So any questions for me? Great, pres great presentation, Tish. Um, Felicia, if you could just get us out of here so we can all look at each other and then I'll open it up for comments. And uh, I'll, I'll say, um, well, I mean, I got so many things to say. Uh, I'll start off with the easy one. Uh, I'm a personal big fan of Tish Murray. Uh, yeah. When I was just a new baby division chief 14 years ago, uh, Tish was one of the first people here who helped me find my way. And, uh, and uh, so Tish and I go way back. So. Uh, I'm not surprised to see you succeeding like this, Tish. And I guess my second comment is, what a wonderful study in, in high performance. And it comes down to leadership and a leader who cares and then setting the metrics and all that. So the, I, I think this is a, I think, uh, uh, and, and there are many places like this within our organization. And the trick for our CEO and our COO is to coalesce all this so it's sort of standard. So this is, this is great stuff and applause uh, to you. And now I'll shut up. Ah, thank you. <laughs> uh, Trustee Banerjee, then uh, Ms. Perez has her hands up. And then I think that's all I see. And then Ms. Graywall and then Trustee Jensen. So let's go uh, Banerjee, Perez, Graywall, Trustee Jensen. Perez had her hand up before me, so I would definitely you. It's how it is on my screen. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. I, I was my, my comment is very brief. I just want to say that I'm an objective validator that yes, 
um, Tish Murray does take calls. She has helped me on numerous occasions. And I always say, I always hang up thinking, isn't she? She's just so helpful and professional and has always helped me to resolve an issue whenever, whenever I've had the pleasure of her being uh, the person who's answered my call. But the rest of the team, I, I really have noticed from the time I first joined AHS to even this year and through the pandemic, how much more um, uh, professional and confident and just, you know, kind of determined they are to resolve my issue um, in any way possible. So I just wanted to say kudos to you and your team. Thank you. Trustee Banerjee, then Ms. Graywall, then Trustee Jensen. Yeah, I, I wanted to thank uh, Tish to have exchanged emails with you, but this is like for me to have an opportunity to thank you in public, in person, is really you have helped me in the, yourself and but also your team members and I just this week Steve helped me so again uh, very prompt and so and and really it's never taken any more than one session when I've went up uh, to resolve my problems and they've been so thank you again to you and your team thank you thank you trustee Banerjee Ms. Graywall then trustee Jensen and Total. then Ms. Dalton Giovanetti Total rock star, Letitia. Fantastic. I just put in the ticket and her people are right there. And sometimes I'm not even ready for them. I'm like, oh, you're here to serve me already? Um, great customer service. I hope you can spread whatever formula or spirit that you have because we could really use exemplary customer service to get us through some tough times. So thank you for everything you do. Thank you, Ms. Graywall. Trustee Jensen, then Ms. Dalton Giovanetti. Well, I really appreciate the accolades. I um, I have an IT department um, in my organization that is not quite so responsive, and it would be I know how hard it is when you when you're sitting there on hold and you're looking at your computer and you're thinking, yeah, I have to get that grant in in ten minutes, and I wish my computer was on. <laughs> but um, I have a, actually have a question. Um, so what my question is, I think it was your second or third slide, how are tickets prioritized? And it's kind of a, you know, I'm going to make a little joke. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek. But, um, like, when you get calls and you have to prioritize your, your um, tickets, you have somebody calls about um, accessing a patient's chart or a, a potential hacking versus someone who um, forgot their password. So depending on what we do is all the staff has access to see the calls in queue. And so we try not to stay on the phone too long. But once we see that it's something urgent, then we have an on-call system as well to escalate that with our escalation management system. So we do a P1 through P4, and those are for incidents. And there's actually an escalation grid that we use to determine the urgency within the system for any incoming tickets and or calls from the end users. And that's seven by 24. Because you mentioned that you have outstanding tickets at all times. So those are all prioritized in that P system, right? And, and for our service enhancements or anything that could wait is a high, medium, and low for service requests. But yes, that's for all incoming tickets. We triage them. Thanks. Great job. Thank you. Thank you, Trustee Justin. Uh, Jensen, uh, Ms. Uh, Dalton Giovanetti. I just want to publicly thank Tish and her team on behalf of both of the medical staffs for their ongoing commitment to quality and patient safety. They call me off hours and they're very gracious and help timely to give providers access back to their epic if they've forgotten passwords or whatever loop closure that needs to happen. 
So Tish, keep up the great work as a leader. I'm so proud to be a colleague of yours. You, mm -hmm. you all are amazing. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you, Satira. Um, <laughs> and and I'll, I'll just pile on again. As, as an end user, um, uh, I, I, I call the, you know, I'm not super tech savvy. Um, uh, I'm decent, but, you know, I call the call center often at one o'clock and man, it, uh, there aren't very many places that, that we have here in this system yet where you feel like you're getting white glove service, but it, it, when you call them, it feels like white glove service. And, uh, again, I want to appreciate that. And then my last comment, and this is maybe for, for Mr. Jackson is, uh, is, uh, you know, the, that, that second to last slide were, were basically leadership lessons. And I, I think this is, uh, they're great leadership lessons. And I think, uh, uh, you know, there's a potential opportunity for a road show uh, for, for, for this kind of thing to show that success can happen in this organization. Success can happen in this organization. So um, with that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna close out that, that very nice report, that's item E. Um, we're going to end the evening. My fault, we're a little bit, about 10 minutes off, but I'll, I'll take ownership on that one. But we do need to hear about COVID-19. This is our, uh, our system update uh, for where we are in COVID-19. And uh, we have um, four uh, listed presenters here, and I'll give it to Dr. Tornabene after this. Dr. Tornabene, of course, our, our chief medical officer. Dr. Farzad Moazid, he's a uh, man, uh, Dr. Moazid holds many positions, but for this evening, he's the chair of our COVID-19 treatment committee. He also leads uh, tuberculosis, tuberculosis services. He's an ICU and pulmonary care doctor. Dr. Roe Lofton, of course, our, our chief, nursing exec, uh, chief nursing officer, and Richard Espinoza, our CAO for post-acute. So I'm gonna give this one to you, uh, Dr. Tornabene. If you, hopefully if you can guide us in about eight to 10 minutes, and then we can open it up for Q&A if any. Okay, got it. We will, we will talk really fast. <laughs> we have lots, lots to share. Hard yeah. to to follow that amazing presentation, but here we go. Um, so in this, uh, let me get my, okay. So in this presentation, we'll be talking to you a little bit about the patient characteristics of this surge. That'll be Dr. Mawazid. Then we're gonna share some uh, information about the impact on our staff. Uh, COVID testing, the therapeutics we have available, the restrictions that we've had to reinstitute, our vaccination, and then really the, 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 um, the oversight of all of this work um, comes under the Restoration and Oversight Committee that is chaired by Mr. Jackson every week, where we really grapple with all of the uh, impacts uh, that COVID-19 is having on Alameda Health System. So with that, just starting with our, our variant, Omicron. So when, when uh, the, the CDC puts this map together every week and updates it, and, and it was really dramatic to follow this along over the course of November into December, where we started to see, because last year when I, when I gave this presentation, that um, I shared the variants and it was Delta where it was a bar graph and in the orange color. And you can see in this, in this graph, the orange is pretty much gone and has been overtaken by this highly transmissible variant that sprang up quickly across the country. 
This is a run chart that now exists in Epic. So I've shared the run chart before, which is really the, the surge of inpatients or our hospitalizations across AHS. Shout out to our business intelligence team who built this into Epic. So now this is readily accessible to all of our users who want to see what our journey has been. And I want to call attention to the small dots on the farthest right vertical line. At the time that I, I took this SNP just about a week ago, you can see that the, the lines representing our three medical acute care hospitals are, were, were shooting up. And in fact, at Highland Hospital, that light blue or teal dot was higher than during any prior surge uh, in the pandemic over the last two years. And so with that, I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Mawazad. And Dr. Mawazad, I will advance the slides. Just tell me when. Okay, great. Thank, thanks so much, everybody. Um, so I think as you see, we, you know, we've had a lot of hospitalizations uh, from Omicron, and we're probably about at the halfway point of this wave. Um, I think it's important to know that we definitely are experiencing more incidental infections as so many people are infected. Um, in the most recent data that I, that I analyzed, almost half of our patients have incidental COVID infection compared to about a quarter uh, during the prior Delta waves. But you know, even if you do adjust for that, we probably net are going to have more Omicron uh, hospitalization um, compared to, to Delta. Um, next slide. Um, this is uh, just a a slide here comparing prior waves, Delta wave, and Omicron waves to see if there was really any change in demographics. And I think I highlighted previously that our initial waves and the Delta wave were, were really quite different. Um, but the Delta wave and Omicron wave aren't really all that different in terms of their overall demographics. So Omicron patients tend to be a little bit older maybe compared to Delta, but the racial uh, breakdown is pretty much identical as you can see between Delta and Omicron, no real differences there. One area that we are seeing a lot of differences in is the uh, vaccine status of patients. And again, these are patients who are admitted for COVID, um, not necessarily like, you know, incidental COVID. Uh, you can see in the Delta wave, only 20% of our patients were, were vaccinated. Um, now it's about half and half. Um, and you can see the vaccine breakdown on the bottom of the slide there, uh, where even uh, patients who are boosted in the bottom two numbers are still getting admitted to the hospital uh, symptomatically with COVID, um, so something to keep an eye on. Next slide, please. Uh, this, is, this is sort of where things are the most promising. This is comparing outcomes in prior waves, Delta and Omicron. And uh, what you can see is so far, uh, the severity outcomes in Omicron are much less. So the need for IC, ICU utilization is significantly down, um, about 16% now ending up in the ICU compared to about a quarter or prior waves. We're ventilating fewer patients, and patients who are ventilated were actually able to get off the ventilator. It felt very hopeless, honestly, during the Delta wave where it seemed like every patient that went on a vent, that was it. But now we're actually feeling some, some hope where if you go on a vent, there's actually a chance we can get you off the vent. Um, and also, on a positive note, the overall mortality has dropped. Now, there's a little bit of bias here because these are patients who have had their outcomes. So they've either been discharged alive or died. And we know that patients who live tend to have their outcomes sooner than patients who die. So there is some bias there where maybe some of the deaths are going to start rolling in in the next few weeks. But overall, this sort of fits with what we've seen 
internationally in, in terms of reports on Omicron. So that, that's encouraging. Next slide, please. This is just a little bit of a, a summary of who's getting critically ill, who's going to the ICU, and who's dying, again, by three waves. Um, I'm not going to go into this into too much detail, just in the interest of time, uh, but the, the sort of the, the age and race uh, breakdowns between the Delta wave and Omicron wave are pretty similar, maybe, again, a little bit younger during the Delta wave compared to the Omicron wave. But I will highlight the, uh, the vaccination status. Um, where actually, if you now look at the Delta wave compared to the Omicron wave, you can see that uh, eight of our, at the time of, the, time of this uh, analysis, eight of our 10 deaths were actually in vaccinated patients. Um, so we're actually seeing a lot more deaths in vaccinated patients that could reflect just the degree of vaccination in the community. It could be reflective of Omicron's immune invasive properties, uh, but that, that's sort of where we're at right now. Um, uh, next slide. So, you know, overall, um, a significantly higher percentage of inpatients have incidental infection, but we still just have so many patients that, uh, as think, I think as has been highlighted, we just have overwhelming numbers. But uh, at least so far amongst patients hospitalized for COVID, the usage of the ICU and the vent and mortality are decreased compared to prior waves. But I would also highlight that a smaller percentage of a huge number still can put a significant uh, burden on the healthcare system. I think that's it for my portion here. Great. Thank you. Okay, so moving to the impact on our operation. So in ambulatory, one of the items that we've been dealing with is that we, because we have such a high volume of calls and we've had staffing shortages in our call center related to, to COVID, so our call center um, waiting time has been increased. Um, um, as um, in order to be uh, nimble in, in this surge, Steve Kilgore helped lead a change in the workflow so that a nurse wouldn't have to review a request for a COVID test. And so this could be done by call center staff. If somebody calls in and said, hey, I'm symptomatic, I want to get testing. And so we, we were able to adapt um, in order to help decrease the number of calls that would be needed for patients who were requesting uh, COVID tests. And then our visit volumes have not decreased, but they um, but our teams switched uh, to uh, emphasize more of a telehealth modality in order to help keep patients at home, address their needs, and also to help us work through our own staffing issues. In terms of our ambulatory vaccinations, you can see that the volume has, has really climbed throughout the fall. That's related likely to boosters and the availability of vaccines for children now. Overall, in terms of our vaccine program, we offer it at all of our wellness sites, in our hospitals, and in all of post-acute care, uh, labor and delivery, and of course, our employee health um, works uh, very hard on getting those vaccines out to our staff. We offer all of the varieties of available vaccines and all of the current CDC recommendations. Now going, Dr. Bouquet, to your earlier question, Right now, our staff uh, across AHS for the primary series are at 95%. The booster, as of today, 67%. So indeed, the extension of the date to March 1st will certainly help us 
and helping us stay staffed. So I'm deeply appreciative, at least, of that move by the California Department of Public Health. And so with that, I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Lofton. Thank you. So um, with all of this, I'm sure you can all know we've, we've been talking about the impact that it had on nursing um, and our resources. So um, it was mentioned last week in the HR report about how our fourth quarter um, of 2021 annualized our AHS turnover for all departments was 27.8%. So we know that that's pretty significant. Um, we also had an increase in sick time utilization um, with the highest being at our John George uh, Psych Hospital. They had about 4,408 sick calls in December, um, which is a lot. Um, this has also had a huge impact on our staff morale. Um, due to the staffing challenges, to distress and fatigue, um, and then just the concern of uh, transmitting COVID. And that's what we saw out at John George. Um, recently, we had to temporarily change uh, the working environment there at John George. They weren't used to caring for patients that were positive for COVID. Um, but due to the um, number of patients we had at our hospitals at Highland and our community hospitals and the decreased staffing that we had, um, we, we had to move to taking care of asymptomatic patients that um, needed to be placed at John George. They had to stay there and that, that was hard for the staff and um, it was a lot of fear, um, a lot of apprehension. Uh, it actually resulted in us having about half of our staff call out one particular Friday. Um, it was very, very impactful. So what did we do about it? Um, in that particular situation with John George, we immediately um, had to um, get with the union and talk with the staff and really hear them out, um, hear about their fears, talk them through the process um, as to why we were doing this. Um, again, we partnered with HR to try and strategize on some of our recruitment efforts with the 27.8% um, turnover rate. You can, you can imagine the number of vacancies that we're dealing with. Um, we also, so this slide is a little behind a little because we have our um, shift incentive program that we put in place and um, HR was very instrumental in this where we were able to get with not just SEI, not just SEIU 10 to 1, but also CNA um, to put in a shift incentive program to be able to um, get staff to pick up additional shifts to kind of close the gap. Um, before that, we started pre-scheduling um, over our core in anticipation of sick calls. Um, we are also looking at additional um, nurse um, staffing agencies for support for our vacancies um, in the short term. But ideally, we would rather use our regular staff to fill these, these holes if they're healthy and able to come to work. Um, and then very um, happy to say we also were able to partner with Employee Health to kind of set up a way for staff to return to work uh, quickly and be able to get their testing done on site to decrease the wait times. Because we were also facing uh, the situation of not being able to buy home tests, not being able to get into your provider to get a negative test to return back to work after you've had COVID. Um, if you go to the next slide, um, this is just a graph depicting the uh, sick call usage. And so as you see, um, John George had a lot of sick usage uh, followed by um, Highland and the community hospitals a lot lower. Um, that's a lot more impactful than the, um, the slide here that shows the um, FMLA and leave of absence use. But um, 
our, our resources were heavily, heavily impacted um, by this most recent strand of COVID. And um, we're trying to work our way out of it, definitely. Great, thank you. Mm -hmm. So moving on to COVID testing. So this is just a, a, a detailing of the history of the COVID testing that we brought in. Under the dynamic duo leadership of Dr. Ng and Face HL, that they brought in the our first COVID test in um, in you know March to June, uh, where we were starting to have that partnership with the Alameda County Department of Public Health. But then finally, we got our in-house instrument in late June of 2020, and then we added a second instrument at Alameda Hospital. This side is interesting in that if you look at the green on the right, that those are the positive COVID tests. And this was month to date when Dr. Ng sent me this slide um, at last week. And you can see the significant increase in the positivity that we've had in recent times. So one of the great testing impacts in this surge is that uh, we are again starting to see some shortages in the supply chain. So early on, we were um, our lab team was constantly trying to source reagents and pipettes and, and whatnot. And unfortunately, we're back there again in having a global shortage in the supply chain for our laboratory tests. One of the other things that we did, and, and Dr. Lofton alluded to that, um, over gosh, three weeks ago now, we expanded our hours at the Highland-based uh, COVID testing site to include the morning, and we opened it up to all of our symptomatic staff. So any one of our staff who was symptomatic, as long as they had signed up for My Alameda Health, could walk up and say, I need a COVID test. And I think that that made a huge difference um, because the availability of testing in the community has just not been there. Uh, this slide really details what I just shared, which is the there were you know the shortages on collection tubes, needles, blood culture bottles, stains. Uh, like our our whole lab, whether or not it's even related to COVID testing, has been impacted by supply chain difficulties. Moving on to therapeutics, now I'm not going to go into the detail on this slide. Really, this is a snip to just demonstrate the variety of therapeutics that we now offer at Alameda Health System in order to treat COVID-19. And in fact, this is developed under the leadership of Dr. Mawazid, who chairs our COVID treatment committee and really partners with our pharmacy leaders, um, Diana Tamarin and Priya Patel, to source these therapeutics. For visitation restrictions, uh, we went back to restricting visitors. So we, we had a, a spirited discussion about this in the Restoration Oversight Committee, given the impact of, of not having ready, ready bedside availability of, of family and friends. However, given the transmissibility of this variant, then we all thought that, that we would should need to um, uh, kind of peel back our visitation for a period of time. So we still allow uh, compassionate exceptions for the end of life or certainly um, for laboring persons. Um, however, routine uh, visitation, we have had um, to pull that back. We'll, we'll likely reinstitute that once we get down um, to a, a lower positivity rate in the community. So with that, I'll turn it over to Richard Espinoza. 
Thank you, Dr. Tornabeni. So um, the post-acutes continue to be um, flexible and nimble with the regulations that are changing. And in terms of visitation, there was a new CDPH CMS regulation um, where they really are encouraging visitors to come. And the rule has recently changed that uh, visitors need to have a 24-hour antigen test, negative test, or a 48-hour negative PCR test. And a lot of the visitors are struggling to uh, receive a test in a community. And so CMS and CDPH are now sending antigen tests to the SNFs to be able to help the family members test um, in order to continue visits um, to a very vulnerable population in our SNFs. Uh, we continue to screen our employees. Um, all of the facilities um, are in response testing, which means they're all in outbreak status. Um, we did get good news today. Um, our subacute unit has just been released from outbreak status, but this means that all of our sites are testing all of our residents and all of our staff every three to four days. And so based on the regulation, as we are proactively testing, we're seeing a lot of positivity in our staff. And so it adds to us um, having to have staff be removed from the schedules. Uh, so it is impacting our areas uh, greatly. And so our SNFs currently are not uh, admitting at our Fairmont and Parkbridge and South Shore and subacute sites until uh, today that subacute has been released um, due to being an outbreak status and the staffing crisis that we're seeing. Uh, thanks to the executive team, we've also included SEIU UHW, SEIU, uh, SEIU 1021 CNA um, in the uh, temporary incentives to help our teams as well with staffing. Uh, our SNFs have all met regulatory compliance during uh, this uh, pandemic and the surge uh, in terms of staffing requirements, um, but it has been uh, a big impact. The numbers have slightly changed since the date of the slide. Um, Parkbridge currently has 10 positive residents in their site. They were up to 12, um, but they're at 10 today uh, with testing of residents occurring today. And now we're just waiting for those results. Fairmont currently has 12 positives, but they were up to 30 last week. Uh, and South Shore continues to have zero positive residents and subacute at zero positives and the acute rehab uh, at zero today. And so as Dr. Tornabeni had mentioned, uh, we're working very closely with our pharmacy teams. We have provided Paxlovid to two of our residents at Fairmont, which have seen some really great outcomes with those residents. Uh, and in terms of vaccine rate um, for our residents, 96% are fully vaccinated and 83% at this point are boosted, which is a great number for those teams to have helped uh, with families and residents to uh, really ensure the importance of the booster and our post-acute staff across the sites at, are at 97.8 uh, fully vaccinated. I'll give that back to you, Dr. Turnabeni. Okay, great. So with that, I just have to end on a message of gratitude. I mean, all of this care for patients is really due to the, you know, in, incessant and constant effort of all of our staff that, that we've been able to respond to this surge 
because we have staff and leaders just coming together and working really hard. Everyone is so tired and yet pulling together, coming together as a team and giving their time to take care of all of our patients with COVID and everyone else. So with that, I just wanted to end with a message of gratitude. I also want to thank uh, Dr. Valerie Eng, Dr. Minnie Swift and Catherine Horner for helping also with the development of these slides. So with that, I'll end there and we'll certainly open it up to questions. Thank you, team. That was a great presentation. Uh, very informative. Um, Felicia, uh, Dr. Horner, Benny, there you go. Uh, trustees, any questions of, of our, our, our presenters this evening? Uh, sorry, um, Ms. Perez, go for it. I think um, Trustee Jensen had her hand up before me. So I'll return sorry. the favor from Dr. Banerjee. <laughs> so, I'm missing, not Trustee sorry, Banerjee. Not, yeah, I think she was. Trustee Jensen okay. and Ms. Perez. You're on mute, Trace. I can go ahead and ask mine if that's okay. All right, thank. Okay, um, so so Richard, um, I, I wanted to ask your question again. Congratulations on on the hard work to stay compliant with the AFLs and the regulations that changed, if not daily, sometimes twice daily. So um, I appreciate that, um, and I know the hard road um, that especially long term care and congregate settings have. Um, I just wanted to know if you had any insight or any learnings or uh, recommendations or tips on how you've been successful with your staff being aware, managing the fear, some of the things that uh, Roe alluded to in the presentation uh, in the presentation earlier on COVID, staff's ability to be prepared to manage patients that are COVID positive, whether symptomatic or asymptomatic, and also the, the um, you know, I want to say the commitment to follow it through. So I was going to give you, ask you. Thank you. Sure. Um, I, I wish I could say that we've completely alleviated everyone's this, um, but we haven't. Um, but we do a lot of education and we um, are very connected to CDPH and Alameda, Alameda County Public Health. Um, I do sit on the subject matter expert uh, post-acute for the public health. So we're really able to ask questions and get insights um, from our colleagues in the county. But really the post-acute leadership teams and our educators and our SNF and subacute areas have really done a remarkable job in terms of um, constant education, um, lots of education to the changes that occur in the regulations in real time, um, and really making sure that we have an open dialogue with our staff. So, they can come and ask questions, we can respond to their questions that we're doing it on the weekends at night um, for all different shifts. Um, so it, it really is a, um, a group effort to stay engaged and keep our teams engaged. But, you know, we still have staff who are, are really fearful about this, especially when they are seeing, as was shared in the slides, a large number uh, percentage of people who are fully vaccinated with boosters who are also um, coming down with this virus um, or this strain. And so really working with Dr. Ellis and her team on infection prevention, just the mechanisms of trying to stay safe. Thank you for that. Trustee Jensen. Um, Richard, that's kind of my, and thanks, Nilda, that was a good opening for me. I, that's kind of my question as well. And I guess, um, first of all, 
are, are we allowing, you know, during this spike, uh, this time last year, we weren't allowing family members to be um, in with seeing patients at um, most sites, including post-acute. And so now that we, we and, and I, the reason I mean, I'm directing this to you, Richard, is because, of course, um, you're, the patients in post-acute aren't the ones who are coming in with the infection as in the acute sites where they, are, they may have the infection when they come in for something else. But you, your patients um, probably are more likely to be, and correct me if I'm wrong, to be getting the infection some from while they're already at the SNF or at Fairmont or at Park Bridge. So um, how I, you've mentioned how, who you're working with and how you're attempting to address that and control it. My question is, um, are we still having family members? Has there been a discussion of having the public into, um, to, which is a whole other, of course, issue of a challenge for all patients to be able to have the comfort of family and friends when they're when they're ill, but that's one issue. And then, of course, that would also address and maybe alleviate some of the issues with staff. So, have you um, identified the transmission at the post-acute sites? So, a great question. And so, there's been a great deal of discussion um, around this with CDPH and CMS. Um, and especially with our, uh, our uh, um, counterparts at the California Association for Health Facilities. Um, and so there's CMS and CDPH uh, have put a regulation in that SNFs are required to have visitors in the SNFs even during outbreak status. Um, and so they understand with data over the course of the two years that we've been in this um, COVID environment, the impact of not having visitors to this population has severely emotionally and physically impacted the well-being of these um, patients. And so there was a big push, um, one, for vaccination and boosters of the residents, but also regulatory compliance for visitation um, of families. And so the recent iteration of that is the um, antigen test um, 24 hours before a visit, a negative antigen test or the 48 hour PCR test. Uh, and then CDPH sent out another AFL that came out last week um, that they were sending um, the antigen test to the SNFs, assist the families um, to test um, because families were not um, able to have tests in the community. And so they weren't able to visit. And so, we are now all receiving these antigen tests um, and are to support the families with testing at the SNF site um, to allow visitation. So there's been a great deal of discussion around that and with CDPH, um, with public health, with CMS um, and our counterparts at, in California, CHA, um, it's a fine balance. And so that's why they put in these uh, strict measures for visiting. Um, but also sending all the SNFs, um, the antigen tests. And I can understand the objective of that, but it would seem to be an additional uh, burden on SNF staff to have these tests distribute the tests and perhaps be answering questions or even reading the test results of um, patient, family, and um, potential visitors. So that certainly must be a challenge for you. 
and and reporting the results. <laughs> you know, one of the questions, you know, early was how do we get the demographics of the families of the visitors because it's an extensive list of information that they want to report to CDPH and CMS and and public health, you know, uh, first booster dates, you know, first first injection, second injection, booster date, age, you know, address, it's a great deal of information that they want. And so it is a challenge for our teams to, um, and when I say our teams, you know, the SNF teams throughout California and the United States to, um, to keep up with these uh, changes. Well, you're doing, you're doing the best job, definitely, but um, thank you. <laughs> Uh, I would, you know, the team, the teams have done a remarkable job in, in the leadership and the staff, and they truly, as Felicia was saying earlier, just the dedication from the staff and the commitment, and, you know, we're trying everything to support them, and we're just um, grateful um, that everyone is really pulling together. Thank you. Thank Trustee you, Richard. Justin. Thank you, Mr. Espinosa. Uh, Trustee Banerjee, then Dr. Clannon, and then I'm... Uh, I'm uh, woefully beyond time, and I think might, we might close it after that. Uh, Trustee Banerjee, then Dr. Clannon. Yeah, um, thank you for that incredibly um, illuminating report. Actually, it uh, you know it's a perfect bookend to the uh, article that we read in the at the first and ending with this because <laughs> you can see all of those connections of why the system is so so just burdened in, and it's just unrelenting unrelenting burden for all of that time but uh, because I, I was thinking because the percentage of incidentals is so high so again thank you Dr. Morazak for amazing uh, you know the plan and the, the teamwork that's gone into it and the therapeutics that's available right now for folks but uh, I was thinking with that happening the pathway for COVID patients is so different right now like we're folks otherwise came in with like and came in with symptoms and you could now they're coming in for something else and you're realizing it so then education part of it becomes even more critical to dispel the fear to be able to do that so um, uh, I can see your work <laughs> Dr. Lofton being very much like just thinking of John George and what we heard at the um, meeting last time, the fear over there and how much it is to be able to have folks understand like why, uh, you know, why everybody has to know this protocol now and to be doing that. But again, um, more of comment. Thank you for the teamwork that's doing this work. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. Dr. Clannon, uh, close it out for us. Three quick things. Um, for those of you who have not met, I'm, I'm Kathleen Klan and I'm the medical director for the County of Alameda. Um, and one thing I want to say is that Richard is, of course, being humble. And um, he is considered by the county to be clearly one of the COVID MVPs in our entire county. And we have leaned into him and relied on him um, to advise us, you know, and to experiment with us on new things. And so I but you knew that probably. Uh, so two other things I just wanted to make sure that you know, um, uh, Dr. Moa said, um, one thing is the, the um, homeless uh, in the, the um, isolation and quarantine capacity for homeless individuals. So 
Dr. Tornameni, for all of your um, EDs and people being discharged from your hospitals. We just want, want you to know we got very close. We came this close and even sent out a notice to everybody saying we were going to have to stop accepting people for a while. Um, but we have not had to do that. We expanded capacity. We're now at 350 beds instead of 30, which is what we started out the month of January with. Um, and um, you, your emergency departments and hospitals are the number one priority for admission. So I just want to make sure that nobody's confused about that. We have capacity, we're open, and Operation Comfort can and will accept. And then the second thing is that we have also been, uh, we have separate supplies from yours of therapeutics, and those are also attached to those beds so that if you have someone partway through a treatment course, we can uh, we can make sure to complete that treatment course if they come to us um, at Operation Comfort. So I just want to uh, hope that that's helpful in terms of throughput. And thanks again to all of you for your extraordinary work over these two years. Thank you, Dr. Klan, and of course, thank you for your work uh, on, on behalf of the county as well. Um, I think we'll close out that report as I'm, I'm running a little bit over time. That'll close out item F. Item G, we'll do super quick. Uh, this is just a tracking calendar and we uh, per Dr. Jensen, we, uh, Trustee Jensen, we identified a great one. We will hear about uh, uh, nursing quality endeavors uh, probably April or May, and we'll, we'll, we'll keep in uh, contact with Dr. Lofton, and Dr. Tornabene, uh, Dr. Williams about that. Uh, oh, sorry, apologies. I don't want to ever shut someone out. Uh, actually, that is Dr. Clannon's hand still up. Got it. Okay. So that closes out item G. Um, item H is closed session. It is not anticipated to be very long. Um, uh, fingers crossed, uh, but we will come back and announce if any action items were made. Council, if you'll announce purpose. The quality committee of the board of trustees will now go into closed session to consider those items as stated in the closed session agenda item. Thank you. Uh, public have a great evening. Uh, we'll hopefully be back in 10 minutes, but if we don't see you have a great evening. <laughs>